I'm going to start out by reading uh, by reading our our scripture today in the parable. It's the parable of the net, and it is found in Matthew 13. It'll be up on the screen as well. You're welcome to read along. In Matthew 13:47, it starts out and it says, "Once again, the kingdom of heaven." is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. And they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets and threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. And he said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Have you ever, or how many of you know of the the Eastern... Asian um, symbol and philosophy called the yin and the yang. It's that black and white. Um, it's that interlocking. They sort of look like two fish sort of like interlocking somehow together. In the black there's the white dot and in the, in the white there's the black dot. Now what that signifies to the Asian culture is it's a philosophical as well as religious um, paradigm and worldview that says this. It says that it's, it signifies, it exemplifies that all things exist in as inseparable and contradictory opposites. So, for example, there's male, but there's female. Or there's dark and there's light. There's old and there's young. They even take it as far as to say that if there's a sole of your foot, there's a top of your foot. And that seems like obvious to all of us and rather insignificant in one sense, perhaps. But it describes how seemingly opposite and contrary forces may actually be complementary and interconnected and interdependent in the natural world and how they give rise to each other as they interrelate to one another. These two opposing poles... Neither pole in their philosophy is superior. And as one increases, then it brings a corresponding decrease in the other. Instead, a correct balance between the two poles must be reached to achieve harmony. Now, what I'm not trying to do is espouse a, an Asian worldview within church and the body of Christ. What I'm doing is I want to make, a, I want to make an example in, contra, or in contrast in that this philosophy says the world exists where these two things, where light and dark, need to coexist. And, and the way to achieve harmony is to have perfect balance between the two. Imagine that you could have... Can you have perfect balance between good and evil, where essentially what they're saying is then if they're in perfect harmony, they balance or they negate each other, and that creates static harmony. 
But in, that is in contrast to Christian thought where what we see in this passage and what we understand as, as believers in Jesus is that at the end of the age, good conquers evil once and for all and that God is victorious. And so what I want to talk about today in light of this is to talk about this kingdom idea of understanding the end of the age as Jesus is telling us in this parable what will happen. I want to look at um, your, illust- your video gave a, a, an idea of why Jesus taught in parables, but to lay a framework, I want to take a few minutes and talk of, and help us understand why did Jesus talk in parables? And then we're going to look at this parable here in just a little bit more depth and in relation to its companion parable, the wheat and the tares, which is in the same chapter. And then out of that, just consider a few thoughts of what does this mean for us? How would this apply to our life? So to begin, let's take a look at Matthew 13. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, you're welcome to. Jesus says very pretty clearly why he chose parables as a teaching tool for the kingdom. Matthew 13, starting at verse 34, it says this, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. In this case, well, and I'll say, it says, According to the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And so Jesus taught in parables because he wanted to actually reveal. Our thinking might be at times that you taught us in a story and it doesn't, we want to hear things like, do this and don't do that. This is how, if you act like this, this is how you know you're, you're saved or you're acceptable to God. We want to hear this very black and white, very concrete thing. And yet Jesus spoke in more abstract terms and phrases where what you have to do is understand the, the, um, what the, he's trying to convey, and then there you can apply it. So, and what happens is when he spoke in stories, we are made and wired for stories. All of humanity is made and wired for stories. And when we understand a story, we listen intently. It's enjoyable and entertaining to have a story. And out of it, you can start to grasp the, the, the meaning of or the reason for the story. And so Jesus is actually saying, I use this, these parables not to further conceal the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to actually reveal. And so, the parables, they reveal the mysteries, the things that might be misunderstood or not fully understood at times by our religious constructs. All of us come to, um, in our particular denominations, we all come to the Scripture with 
if we've been well-versed in our particular denominational doctrines, we come to the Scriptures with these particular, I'll call them biases. And as a result, we can tend to, this is how we view um, what is right and wrong informationally according to, uh, within Scripture. In Jesus' day, there were all these sects and, and factions. The different factions were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots. Have you, ever, have you heard of any of these words in these groups of people? Each of them had particular ways of understanding their Scripture, and they thought that they were right entirely. When they did, they would argue among themselves about which position and which view was right. Jesus came and was saying, if you understand the meaning and the purpose of the teaching of a parable, if you understand its intent, you will understand my kingdom. And what it is, is it is superior to all of the understanding of your particular factions. Today, at least in America alone, we have not four or five factions. We have tens of thousands of factions called denominations. And, um, and none of us actually have the one perfect expression of the kingdom of God. Not the Mennonites, not to offend you, but not the Mennonites. Not the brethren in Christ. Not the Catholics alone. Not even the vineyard holds the one true expression and understanding of the perfect interpretations of Scripture. And so Jesus was telling us, telling, using stories to reveal the mysteries and also to reveal the unfolding purpose, the progressive unfolding purpose of his plan of redemption for the world. And the, the parables were the best means of doing that. As we understand them, we understand then these two things. We understand that they are an effective way to reveal the proper interpretation of Scripture, and they help us understand the cultural and relational dynamics of doing life God's way. That's what the parables are for. According to this passage right here, when God can speak for himself, so to say, that's what the parables do. And God is showing us, he's revealing the mysteries of what it's like to live in his culture. What it's like to live in the reality of where God is king and where things would run according to his ordinances. And, and Jesus came to say, this is how it is with my father in his reign. This is how we live. So he revealed, the, actually what Jesus said is, I came to reveal the best, the proper interpretation of the law. So, Jesus taught in parables to reveal the mysteries of the kingdom and to teach us what it's like to live in God's community, in God's life, in God's, within God's reign. Now, the parable itself it has a parallel passage right here in chapter 13 of this wonderful passage called the wheat and the tares. 
it helps us give it helps give us a fine tuning to interpret the parable when we when we look at him in not in contrast but in the parallel we can see this that Jesus was actually just making in and using this parable of the net to say here's another way of looking at the same meaning of the parable of the wheat and the tares with parables, they speak for themselves. Not every aspect of a parable needs to be um, allegorized. And yet, because the meaning will come out on its own. And so, we have these two, and out of them we can, we can parallel them, we can compare them a bit. So, first of all, the net in this passage that, that we started with and read, the net is not necessarily, it's a fishing net, but of a different kind. It's not the kind that you cast like this, and it, and it f- flies open and lands, and then it kind of sinks to the bottom and collects a school of fish. This net is a drag net. It, it had weight on it, and it would, it would be dragged across the bottom, scraping through the bottom. And as it does, it collects, this net would collect everything in its path. Now, like the parable of the wheat and the tares, the seed is cast into the field. This net is put into the water, and the, the, it is cast into the water, although it scrapes the bottom, as I'm saying. But just like the parable of the wheat and the tares... The seed is cast broadly into the field. And so first of all, the kingdom of God is in Jesus being proclaimed broadly, not just in their case to the people of Israel, but it's being proclaimed broadly into and intended that it will go broadly into all the world. Even the Gentiles are part of God's, the mystery, part of the mystery of the kingdom is that even the Gentiles are, are intended by God, and by the way, you and I are those Gentiles, that even God wanted all of his people, all of his creation, to have the opportunity to respond to his invitation of redemption. To be redeemed is to be brought back into the Father's house. God wants everyone to have the opportunity to respond to to be brought back into the Father's house. And so the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed widely and broadly. And that's how Jesus uses the idea of a net to express that. That it is something that's cast broadly. And he says, this is the first piece of understanding that among the kingdom, that gospel is proclaimed broadly. The second thing is, that within this, we see that there is good and bad fish, just like in the parable of the wheat and the tares. There is good and bad wheat. I think Jeff showed you a couple weeks ago an illustration of what um, the, the, they call it darnel, the, the thing that, this plant that looks like wheat, but it's not actually, and it's really good for nothing. But initially, it looks the same. And so these things coexist. And in the, in the realm of humanity, water is, a, water is one expression. It's one illustration to describe all of humanity. In Revelation, it says that the, 
I believe it's the adulterous woman, let's say, stands on many waters. And I'm thinking, how is, what does that mean? This woman like straddles like many waters. Or, and I might be mixing my illustration here, so please bear with me if I've got them slightly mixed up. But the whole point of like if someone's standing on these many waters, what are they saying? It's saying they are standing as ruler over, as a leader over many people. It's all humanity. And so here, the water is also that illustration of there's many fish in the water, and it represents all of humanity. That, that all of them... Now, here's the thing. There are, in their case, Jesus, there was this thing that they were allowed to have some fish, but they were not allowed to have others. For them, there was what they called the bad fish. And the best understanding of this bad fish is um, pretty much... The fish that they think this is like, what Jesus was alluding to for their sake of understanding, was an American catfish. It's a bottom-feeding fish that just sucks up and eats basically the garbage of things. Kind of like shrimp. You're, you, you know, if you love shrimp, you love shrimp because they taste so good. But are they good for you because they're basically just garbage filterers, Right? It's not good for our cholesterol. In a very practical sense, the things that God limited them from were, were because mainly for their best benefit. And so this would have been a prohibited fish, and so they understood it as he was, Jesus was simply saying, he wasn't trying to make the point of like how some people are so bad. But he was just saying, look, there's these things, and this inhumanity... There's the good and the evil, and for a season, they coexist. In the same space, in the same world, people that call Jesus Lord and don't, for a, for a certain set time ordained by the Father, coexist together in the same space. The good and the bad fish. Now, the dragnet is that you, they would drag along the bottom, and then it would scoop up, but it's going to scoop up not just fish, it's going to scoop up good and bad fish together. It's going to scoop up also things like snakes and rocks and, and all the debris from, from between the, the ground of the water and the top of the water. It's going to scoop up everything in its path, and they would pull it up, get it onto the shore, spread it back out, and now they got to organize it all. And they say that there was, you know, in this case, it was not uncommon that there'd be separating, like, throwing out the rocks and the pebbles and, like, snakes. And I'm just thinking, oh, my gosh, I could never do that job. And so they would, also, they would be separating these things, and they would separate these good and bad fish. The bad fish probably thrown back into the water. The good fish taken by the fishermen prepared to be sold at market, right, for their benefit, okay? And that's how that would work. Now, Jesus was saying to them, every parable, (coughs) excuse me, starts with, not every, excuse me, many of the parables, at least, start with the expression, the kingdom of heaven is like. And what he's saying is, when you see this happening in the world, in front of you, in, in the world we live in, understand that it's an illustration of. It gives us an inside peek into what the kingdom of God is really like. 
And so there are a few points to this. And he says, so it will be at the end of the age. What does this mean? It indicates to us that the parable that it speaks to, the timing. It's saying there's a timing, but it doesn't speak to timing as in, like we've heard many people try to predict the actual timing. What it's saying is it's speaking to the how or the what will go on when that time comes. It's not trying to tell us when the time will be, but it's saying when that time comes, this is what's go- what it's going to be like. It's going to be like not everybody gets caught up into the air, but it's actually like a judgment time where we are sifted according to whether we call Jesus Lord or we don't. There's a separating that, that will happen. And so he's saying that this is what the end of the age will be like. All the allegorizing, there's not much that needs to be allegorized beyond what Jesus already said. The angels, the men would be saying, or the men in the parable, simply like the, as the angels of God, as the sons of God, as it were will be the ones that will kind of organize all this great, this great dividing of people. The good fish are an allegory for the righteous ones, and the bad fish are an allegory for evil or unrighteous ones. And there's actually not a tremendous amount more that needs to be allegorized. Otherwise, we start to lose the actual meaning. And the meaning is simply, at the end of the age... While all this stuff is going on now, there will be a time. Unlike what the Taoists think, that these that harmony is found when they coexist and they live in a tension, basically they negate each other out, and you have, in their case, it looks like perfection to them. It looks like utopia. But God is saying to us, That's not what it is. There is a time when goodness does win. And there will be justice and and things will be made right according to God at that time. That not everything goes unpunished and unaddressed, let's say. but But there will be a time when the righteous will be rewarded appropriately. And the unjust will as well. And so that time is in the hands of God. It's in the hands of the Father. Now what does any of this mean? What, is, what points is Jesus trying to make and what does it mean for us? First of all, one thing that I take away from this is that it doesn't appear to me that we get to say or that our focus should be on who's in and who's out. That's not our job. To worry about and to evaluate who's in or who's out is really only God's job. That's for Him to say ultimately. We're the ones that are actually being separated, not evaluating who's to be separated. We are not the angels of God doing the separating. We are the ones that are actually being sifted in this parable. And to just even think about that one and realize that, at least as I even hear myself saying, we are the ones being sifted in this. To me, it gives me some pause. 
and to consider where I, how I've applied this before. The second thing is that we allow the kingdom to be preeminent. Jesus taught about the kingdom. He did not teach about the church. He did not teach about denominations of the church. Jesus spoke of the kingdom in a preeminent and superior way. And out of that, that we would not let denominations define us. And that we would especially not let them divide us. One of the things I believe God is doing today is is this very thing. He is causing... understanding of the kingdom to be brought to the front of and the forefront of things. It, it, it is a struggle for us then if we are to hold on to a, a, an affection for a particular denomination if we are if we're if that is becoming um, a higher affection as I call it than the kingdom of God. We all will find families but the kingdom of God is still a superior definition, and it defines even more than a particular denomination and family group. It's fine to have those as long as they are not the final thing that defines us and that we would let that define us. I hope I'm not getting lost, and I hope I'm not, number one, sounding critical, and I hope, number two, that I'm not getting lost in my trying to explain that concept. But instead, we're better off to focus on what unites us, and that is the kingdom of God. That is the overall, the family of God as one people. In Jesus' teaching, the kingdom is always superior to any religious institution. And we would be well served, I think, to keep in mind, at the end of the ages, this parable is referring us to, there is no denomination spoken of in heaven. There is no denomination spoken of in eternity. There will not be denominations in eternity. So to learn how to live in that, to learn how to live in the context of that and in reference point to that is actually a very healthy thing. Another thing is that there there are, according to this passage, there are eternal consequences. Now some... It has always been within the church, and it remains today that, that people believe differently about this. Yet, traditionally within the church, there is the understanding that there are consequences at one point in time of which death and then the judgment. It is appointed unto men and women once to die, and after that, the judgment. Yet, some will look at Scripture, some will try to explain out of Scripture that there is a thing like annihilation, I think they call it, where eventually God would destroy your soul. And the discussion rages at times and can be very emotionally charged of whether or not there is eternal, um, conscious eternal punishment, they call it, or if people will be completely of their soul ceasing to exist entirely. Another form of it is that in the opposite end of that spectrum is that people look at it and they will say, well, that we believe, I believe in, they will put forth this theory of 
um, what they call post-mortem conversion. That there will be a time of punishment, but that punishment then will be great enough to convert the person, and they will then repent of their sin, and after that be allowed into this heavenly kingdom of God. And what, as I look at this, there's a separating. And it implies to us at least, at very least, that there's, this is the final. There's no more opportunity for, for grace to redemption after that. And so our decisions here in this life have a consequence. They, for the good or the bad, and we do well to remain and confess Jesus as Lord. Right? And lastly, that our job is to remain prepared ourselves for the unknown time of harvest. This parable is talking about the harvest time. That it's not about necessarily what the when the harvest will happen is not the point of the parable of this parable, but the what that harvest will look like is what Jesus is trying to communicate to us. And in that, the harvest will have a separating effect to it. When the harvest comes, there will be a separation that's happening. A friend of mine, we were talking the other, um, the other week about ooh, excuse me, how in Jesus' day... When a, when a young man and a woman, were, they were betrothed to each other, there was a time before the wedding where the young man would go back with his father to the house. And he, the, what, the, what society and the culture knew at that time was, don't worry, I and the groom are coming back for you. But the one who decided the date of the wedding was not the son and the daughter, not the young man and the young woman deciding their marriage date. The one who decided that time was the father of the groom. And in the meantime, what the groom would be doing, what that prospective groom is doing, is building a room onto the family house where he and his new bride would begin their married life. But he wasn't allowed to go go get his bride until the father said it was time. So the timing, I just found this fascinating in that this is an example. The the bride was to remain ready and to, to be and be thinking toward being ready. The groom was getting ready in his own way and the bride gets ready in her own way. We are the bride, our job is not to think of who's in and who's out or find the exact time and know the mind of God. Our job is to be doing the work of the gospel and, and preparing ourselves as the bride of Christ as well, personally and corporately. And so if I may, just for a very quick moment, this final, the final text here in 13 When Jesus says to them, have you understood these things? And they said, yes. He says, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. I just want to identify that because Jeff Jeff captured this whole segment of a passage that when we move from the perspective of 
teaching about the church and how to be perhaps a, you know, a good vineyard person or a good you know, Catholic and whomever else. And we approach it according to our denomination, yet Jesus is saying, when you understand the kingdom perspective, and this is why the series is, so, is a wonderful thing, what it's like is it's like unpacking new and realizing new perspective about the same stuff we already have. We had some folks that were with us last night at our church, and they were saying, we're coming to understand and think that the idea of the gifts of the Spirit may still be active today. And the lady was so kind, this young lady was so kind, she says, I, I enjoyed our time with you tonight, but just so you understand where we're coming from, it's kind of like where I grew up, they would have thought what you did tonight was basically worshiping demons. And I thought, my goodness. Like, it was kind of subdued. Like, we're not really, rowdy, you know, highly charismatic in, our, in what our, the context of ourselves. But anyway, I wasn't offended by it. What I took away from that is that when we start to understand the kingdom, it brings new life from within the... It brings another facet of the gem of understanding of what we already have as followers of Jesus, just within the paradigm, that lens, that facet of understanding through the kingdom expression. And it's beautiful. It's wonderful. And it brings another fresh uh, flavor of life. Thank you for letting me share with you this morning.